We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's a Better check swats Troy Deeney's teeny cojones out of the Emirates as Arsenal win 3-0 at home and Petr Cech collects his 200th Premier League clean sheet, one or two of which even came at Arsenal. This is the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. I am joined today by Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Paws My Pants. Hello, Paws. Woohoo! And Clive is on Twitter at Clive P-A-F-C. Hello, Clive. Hello, hello. Not able to get Tim or Scott on the pod today, which means this will be a brisk one. I imagine we can get through it in no more than 90 or 100 minutes. Uh, and it was just 90 minutes at the Emirates uh, on the weekend, but it was a victory. Our first Premier League victory since, it says here, 1987. And uh, it was over in a Watford team that admittedly we had a bit of a grudge against. Troy Deeney made the comment that we had no cojones. Uh, I think Richarlison had done some social media or, or maybe made a point about about. Hector Bellerin's hair being too long to see. There's, I don't know. They, they were talking a bunch of shit for the crap team that they are, and we swatted them away. Uh, beat them 3-0. Check saved a penalty. I mean, it was all kinds of things you never expected you would see in your lifetime, but we did. And so, Paul, I want to start with you with the approach the manager took to this match. I felt that, look, the Premier League doesn't matter anymore. Totally punt on it. Play kids from the U10s, I don't care, it's all about Milan. I realize that life is simple when you are a headless pundit like myself. When you are the manager, it's not that straightforward. So did you feel, when you saw the lineup and the way he set the team up, that it was too much rotation or not enough rotation? Uh, So I was watching this Sky BT illegal stream thing, so I don't really know whether it was Sky or BT. Anybody spit on you? 
Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, Mauricio Pochettino and his boys were being interviewed, his backroom team that signed up with him. At one stage, uh, his right-hand man's, uh, I think his, his name's, it's JP or his initials, either Jesus Perez or something like that. Anyway, he says, in deference to Pochettino and the toughness of the job, anybody can pick a team. Anybody can pick a perf- a, a, a uh, formation, but only um, o- only a manager knows what you have to go through once the game starts kind of thing. You got and that I out really cleanly, that, Paul. Thanks for sharing it. Yeah. No, well, <laughs> I, I was trying to infuse it with the complexity that is oh, that Oh, you role. made it complex, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you, you approached that with all the confidence of Danny Welbeck stepping up to strike through a football. So get to the point, yeah, though. That would be good. <laughs> I didn't have to re-record the intro. I don't even twice. know what you're talking about. Prove that that happened. Because you, you <laughs> thought the game was 2-0 instead of 3-0, but Clive caught you. I would Those have aren't the statistics I focus on, you know? Okay, come on. <laughs> bring it. Bring the intellectual noise. So to your point, it, it, it's easy to have a feeling about what you could do or should do, but then you get into the realities of management. I did – Tim was with you on, on playing the, the B team. Uh, I always thought it was going to have to be a calculated – calculated hybrid i'm not doing good with the words here today um because you you just can't uh wave the white flag even if the white flag's being waved for you this that in the intangibles some people don't believe in around here um not on this pod you know confidence etc you gotta maintain some momentum you can't have the shit storm that is the the uh, press conference afterwards where you're getting reamed for sending out the kids and getting stuffed 7-0. So you're saying just keeping the mood around the club up, following the Milan victory, going into the second leg of Milan, it does have value. Even if, Because, look, if you make 11 changes and those kids go out and they get stomped, it's not the players playing Milan that suffer it, but just the mood around the club you think can have an impact, drag everybody down back into that Arsenal in crisis narrative. I think, yeah, absolutely. I think that's half of it. The other half of it is just playing. Uh, you got to play well as a club. You can't just keep showing up in the Europa League, playing shit in the Premier League, and playing brilliantly. In the, you know, we have to win the damn thing. We probably need to hit some form, some understanding between our players, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And there's a number of players who need to be played into form or into better form, and they need to be surrounded by good players playing the Arsenal way. So, uh, I th- to me, it was too early to wave the flag. Uh, we're, we are, after all... Uh, what are we two zero? Got to be careful here, or they'll jump on me. Two zero ahead and about to play Milan at home, which I know is no guarantee in the Europa League, as we've proved when we were three zero. But we should be able to take this home. We should be able to put out a good. We did play the B team in the second leg against Thek and Ostersund. Um, yeah, and look how and well we, that went. <laughs> yeah, so. So you got to be careful. The boys should, for the most part, most of these guys should be able to play two games a week because they haven't really done it all season. Um, and yes, Europa League's really, really important, blah, blah, blah. But if you... It, the, the other thing is, how much attention does the manager want to bring onto his team in the Europa League by absolutely coughing up the Premier League? I mean, there's enough pressure as it is. Don't invite an even bigger spotlight. So anyway... I think it's a balance. Okay, yeah. And I mean, look, ultimately, I think 
the issue is that there are certain players that we just don't have a great replacement for, and, and the whole season is down in the Europa League now, and so you would like to see those players protected. And yet, because we don't have a replacement for them, if you don't use them, you run into a situation where the team can just completely come unglued, come unstuck at home yeah. in front of the, the we, tens of fans that were there. Yeah, and we should remember, there were six changes as it was. You know, he right? wrapped Koscielny so, in Cottonwell, he wrapped Ramsey in Cottonwell. I think those are the players who you most worry about playing twice a week. So I think he, he had an eye towards that. Um, yeah, and those who are advocates of even more changes maybe aren't thinking that he already had six for various reasons. I'm not saying it was for the reasons they wanted there to be changes, mm -hmm. but what, are you going to make eight changes or not? You know, like at that stage, it's like... Well, it's, it's just... still the Premier League, right? And even if you have nothing to play yeah. for in terms of, you know, where you're going to finish in the season, a Premier League game still has value by virtue of being a Premier League game. You still owe it some debt of... of seriousness, I, I guess, for lack of yeah. a better way to put it. And how would we like to come 7th or 8th? I know it doesn't matter. I don't think that's going to happen regardless, but yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, okay. I just don't but, trust Burnley you know, to put in the performance. I mean, I think we can half-ass our way to staying above Burnley, but I get your point. Um, you don't want to be having that debate with the press, do you? No. You, well, you I don't whether. have to. <laughs> no. uh, but it would be a great stick to beat Arsene with nonetheless. So let's yeah. let's talk about how this game went. And Clive... Early on, Ozil plays a through ball to Aubameyang. He gets him behind. Uh, he has a chance. I guess you'd say well saved. It's from, what, 18, 17 yards out in the channel. It's not an easy chance. But you saw that burst of pace again to get him behind, and it became a feature of the game. And, in fact, for his goal, he really turned on the pace to get to his first touch. It was kind of away from him into the back towards the middle, and he got to it. I mean, We've now seen Aubameyang play for us a little bit, and it is frustrating yep. that he can't play in Europe, and so it's kind of been a stop-start period to him since arriving, but I'm curious to kind of get now with a few games under his belt, your appraisal of how he's performing and, and what he's brought to the team that maybe you expected and anything that maybe you didn't expect. I think um, I think physically he didn't arrive here in the best of shape. He looks as though he hadn't been training properly at Dortmund before his exit, and I thought he... Looked a bit very lightweight, actually. Lightweight than I expected, you know. We spent years watching him on YouTube, running from the halfway line and just running away from people. But actually, his speed is actually best in crowds. I think when he runs for in short, sharp bursts off the ball, his movement's so sharp, you almost have to give him the ball. And Mkhitaryan reads him perfectly. Sometimes some of the longer sprints, if he, when defenders are dropping early and they're giving themselves two, three hours because they're scared of him, they're the ones like company did. He dropped off early. I think there's one in this game where defender nearly caught him. I think, you know, when you watch him like every week like we are now, you you've, you actually see that he can be caught on occasion. And there are other times when he's two, three yards ahead. It's all about timing and movement. I think it's not just raw athleticism. And that gives me hope for the future, right? He's 28, near 29 in the summer. So that means his speed is not just what I call stupid speed. It's smart speed. He knows how to use it in small spaces, how to go from out to in. He's got the Theo run. He's got the run from the left and the right side and straight down the middle. So he looks smart. He switches on to when the receiving playmaker's got the ball, he's already on the move. And I think he's a very intelligent footballer. His finishing will get better as his physical abilities get better. I think when he feels more confident in his body, I think he'll... He'll slot things away even more. Uh, I like I, I like him a lot. If I could have picked a, an Arsenal centre forward two three years ago, 
anyone in the world, I would have picked him. I think he's perfect for us. It's interesting to watch him now, and obviously I think we all think we're going to get more from him next season. But I think he gives us a thrust, and I think it'd be interesting to see how we support him. I think I still feel with two playmakers, it's not quite right. It's not quite scary enough for uh, uh, for certain games. I would still like one of those wide people to be either a second forward or somebody with Ramsey raw, raw can provide speed. some of that, right? I mean, we haven't actually seen Ramsey and, and Aubameyang play together a lot, but the one thing that his running can do, much like Welbeck, only with more danger, is pull defenders out of position, but there's got to be someone to run into those spaces. Yeah, potentially. So, uh, in, in my own sort of mind, I, I like I like almost two forwards in the front. If they're going to do three up top, I I like two forwards. If we're doing a four-two-three-one. I like to have you know two goal scorers. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. And I, and I think we've got we've got midfielders and playmakers who can score, but they don't walk on the pitch saying I'm going to score today. So I mean, I know says, Tim wrote the article about. Would you try to get Lacazette on the pitch with him and, and see if that can work? Absolutely, I've, I've said it. I said it from the start of the season. I've seen Lacazette the first time I saw him, Emirates Cup, Leon, and he looked like a nine and a half to me. He didn't like a nine running away like a Bamiyang. He liked somebody wanting to link play, and everyone was telling me something else. I often say when you see a player the first time you see him, trust your initial emotion. That tells you what he is, and I thought he was a linker rather than a runaway goal scorer. I think he's incredibly smart in small spaces. I think he could be a really good partner. It's almost like Lacazette is almost bordering on a, a Griezmann-like player. You know, that second forward who's smart, makes good decisions, good contacts, not just someone who plays at the tip of the diamond at the top end of the pitch. You know, so um, I definitely want to see that. I sort of, been, you know, my views and get two strikers on the pitch, move the emphasis further forward. Let's not play amongst our centre halves. Let's play amongst our centre forwards. That's what a lot of the modern teams are doing today. They're playing in areas, they're playing away from their goal, and they make you travel through their team and they foul early. That's all Man City do. They get it up, out, wide, early. They play in the areas they want to play. And when you turn them around, they, they either press you off the ball or they foul you off the ball tactically very quickly and they break your momentum. But everything is done in your half, mm -hmm. right? So it's a challenge for you. And we have to get like that. We still are playing through the thirds, having our rhythm, getting ourselves going. And I'm telling you, a lot of these teams, it's so much easier to coach off-the-ball football. It's so much easier to coach pressing in zones. It's so much easier to have defensive-type athletes that can put you under pressure when you're on the well, half-turn. it certainly turn requires a lot less technical see. skill, right? I mean, like, anyone Absolutely. who can run and, and can follow instructions can do that, whereas, you know, having to pass your way through teams from back to front takes a lot more technical quality. A lot more technical quality. It's a lot harder to coach offensive patterns rather than to coach defensive pressing. We get excited about it, but it's just an effort thing. It's a trigger thing. You pick on certain players and you trigger and you come from different sides and you keep it going for a certain amount of seconds and you drop away because you can't keep the intensity. It's just something that's done on triggers and you just go, 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 in you go, see what you get and you spring. Two passes. That's so easy to coach for and that's so easy to execute if you do it smartly. It's much harder to do what the better teams do, which is move the ball, flow through teams, 
get yourself out of different areas, quick punchy passing, round the corner, and then flow through teams. I mean, Man City can do both sides. They can press you if they want to, but they can build play also with real skillful players in centre midfield who know how to build like De Bruyne and Silva. Liverpool and so, Spurs yeah. do it the other way, more like what you're talking about. And I, I think if you have pace up front areas. in Aubameyang, I mean, look, we always think about, oh, it's counter-attacking pace or it's you know playing in behind, but actually the best way to utilize pace, in my opinion, is when the team is trying to come out at you, when your opponents are trying to take that step forward to start building play and you're able to nick it off them that's where you can really exploit space with with running and so to your point i think that's how you make the most out of obamiang and and he thrived with with that style at dortmund Uh, i'm gonna that is absolutely spot on you've taken it you've taken my that is spot on i think we have to realize this we we look at him and we think okay we want to get him in. We want to get him in. But actually, the best way to get him in is sometimes to not have the ball too long and then get him in. You know, so we've got to find broken play for him. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, I, think I totally get it. I think that's right. Especially because the first thing, play, go ahead, go so ahead, first thing he did in the game was charge down. Uh, they took the kickoff and he charged down the midfielder who was about to pass it upfield. So it's it's in his blood. It's definitely there. He's, he's going to be a he's going to be a very good player for us. I think if I project forward into next season, it's going to be interesting to see how Mikatarian gets used. Or and I, I think I just got a feeling that one of Urzel or Mikatarian is going to drop a little bit deeper on occasion. If you do a four three three, if you do a four two three one, then obviously they can both they can both play. And I think we might end up buying something a little bit more devastating on maybe the right wing. That can, you know, maybe <clears throat> Dembele, <clears throat> he said, <laughs> uh, someone like that on the right wing who's quite devastating with a left foot and leave Ozil free and Mkhitaryan coming off the left side. I mean, that's my sort of, uh, <laughs> I have a dream team. Is yeah. what I mean? No, I totally get it. I, I, I think this team is crying out for that, that kind of power and athleticism in, it's in somewhere, but ideally in the center of the pitch. I mean, Paul, the one thing that is interesting, so this game, since Scott won't be here, I'll do this bit for him. It says here 2.56 XG to 2, uh, 2.06. Now, I realize they had a penalty, hilariously saved, and we'll come to that. But I think this was another example, again, of what happens when a broken team plays the best they can. And what I mean by that, I'm not trying to shit on us, but we we didn't defend (laughs) brilliantly in this match, but we did attack really well. And I guess my question for you is, Right now, is this sort of the grand compromise we have to make that when we can click offensively, we have to take it and that we're probably not going to be able to close up all the cracks and seal up all the cracks at the back, but that with Mkhitaryan integrating and Aubameyang running in behind and Ozil doing a little bit of everything, there may be just enough of an attacking concept here to carry us through. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I mean... I'm surprised on the XG number. Uh, I don't know what your your feeling on it is. I mean, in terms of just a flow of a game and opportunities and stuff, uh, I could certainly see where we could have got punished. They had us but, on the rack for a good 45 minutes there, from the tail end of the first half to the first half of the second half. We were hanging on for a while. And, and we made the game yeah. safe so it doesn't feel that way in retrospect. But, I mean, if you go back through the old Twitter timeline, which has never told a lie, there's a lot of people with tweets that say, this is, this is great, we're hanging on against Watford at the Emirates. But, like, all kidding aside, there was a little bit of that in the middle of the game. Yeah, I mean, I certainly remember that. I, I still, it still doesn't quite tally for me. But um, 11 I shots mean, each, Paul. 11 shots well, each. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I, mean, I should mention that XG might include the penalty as well. I, I think Scott includes that in his XG number, whereas some pull it out and, and count it separately. So that's a point. Yeah. Eight. That's point eight of it right there. But while I agree, we we kind of sat we we sat back and we kind of uh, kept it tight. It didn't feel uh, our chances felt better than theirs. Yeah. Our chances felt more open. It felt like we were playing a game where we were a goal up and a little bit of a risky proposition with us for sure. I think it was one of our better uh, defensive performance recently. So it didn't seem, it was one of those games where, well, anyone stand I out for you then? Okay. I mean, I, I thought Mustafi had, had another creditable game, which I mean is a big step up from where he's yep. been, but I mean, obviously holding in Maitland Niles, you, ha- you had to put them under the microscope a little bit. Were you impressed with what you saw from them other than the way, uh, Amen kind of lazily gave away the penalty. Yeah, I thought that Maitland Niles was was very very good uh, and very eye catching and very exciting for most of the game. Towards the end, I think he got a little cocky and started overdoing it. He gave the ball away more than anybody else from what I remember seeing from the stats. I think Holding did well. I think Chambers uh, came on for a little bit, did okay. Um, I thought Kalasinac was pretty good. The, certainly, uh, I mean, the, I just the, thought, the uh, Mustafi injury is, is a concern going into Thursday. But it, it certainly you know, is. Yeah. I, I thought Chaka and El Neni were fairly solid in the middle. Um, so while I'm not saying we had it all under control, I think they had a lot of possession. I think we held our shape. I think they had a lot of shots. Um, you know, they could have got something off one of their crosses, gr- get, granted. But I, I thought it was okay. Okay. Um, I, I thought going forward, we looked pretty dangerous. Um, it was definitely a game where, thank God, we got the first goal. Um, it's funny how that happens, but first goals are a really, really good thing and a really, really bad thing to concede. Um, so, you know, I was okay with it. I mean, I, I have to tell you, I thought that you know, the commentators on TV for Ozil's save, you know, the one where he stepped over the challenge in the area and then shot uh, yeah. to the keeper's left to the right of the goal and the keeper saved it with his feet gave him the eyes apparently yeah well i thought that was a really really good save and they kind of characterized it as like ozil could do better with the finish there and i mean you can always do better with the finish when you don't score obviously yeah but i thought that was a really good save and a really good chance um so real real quick clad before we we move on i want to talk about elneny here in a second but before we do i mean do you agree with the characterization that to some extent right now we are a flawed side and that with the talent we have offensively the best we can hope for is for that side to click, that asking for a coherent defense, and I realize we're just coming off a clean sheet, by the way, but that we're, we're not going to be able to, to seal everything up at the back. Uh, I tell you, I didn't see this game live, live. I saw, I knew the score and I watched it just after it's finished. And, um, and I sat Were you I still nervous? Gonna... <laughs> well, yeah. This one goes back getting into I thought, this is going to be fun. I know the score, but it, I bet it was easy. I knew nothing about the game, just watched it. I tell you what, I'm watching this game at 1-0, and we're, we're under pressure. We are being bullied around. They're building momentum. They're I saw it in. that way, too. Yeah. I'm telling you now, and, and it, it reminds me of what we you were speaking about. You two are the problem on Twitter. You're the two guys, <laughs> aren't you? Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the second goal came at a really good time, and that sort of that sort of killed them. right? But at 1-0, that was a game. And there was one team that looked really confident they might score. And our goalkeeper played well. We had some blocks. We had to play the corners to defend. I mean, this was eleven shots apiece game. This is a this is a this was a match. And I know we were talking last week about um, uh, 
what it needs for Arsenal to step on to be a league challenging team. And if you look if you look at us and you say to yourself, okay, how do you beat us? And Watford have that big physical team that challenge us in areas where we potentially can be found wanting. Right? So at some point we're gonna have to answer that question or have players who can answer that question. That can win more duels. I've just finished watching I'm just watching Man City on the telly and I'm watching Kevin De Bruyne go shoulder to shoulder with the Stoke guys. So I'm thinking, he knows he has to do that tonight. He has to, because that's what's required. That's how you gain respect at, at Stoke. You can't be kicked off the pitch. And he's digging in and he's fighting, because eventually the, their fire will go and City should get on top. Right. So I think it's something we have to answer. And this was, this was a game. What was really good was our efficiency you know, making sure Ozil takes the free kick and we get the first goal. Not having Shaka hit the first man, although Shaka did play well, I'm sure he got onto him. And making sure we do those fine th- details right. When when Abamian gets in, he goes round the keeper. Make sure. So we're, we're two up. Much like Ramsey did the other day, he made sure. Ozil didn't make sure. He didn't take care. He didn't make it an absolute certain goal. If we're going to be defensively weak, let's be offensively efficient. So we can put these teams away because goals change the story of football matches. And so I felt we got away there a little bit. And we ran away. We had a great day. And all the things happened later on that made it made it fun. But there was a long period in that game where I felt it was um, a lot more tense than it should have been. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree that, that there were those periods. And part of me wonders, too, if, look, this is going to be the challenge, you guys, for, for this team for the rest of the season is that the Premier League now feels almost like a you know, Carling Cup, a Capital One Cup, a Carabao Cup, or whatever the hell is sponsoring it that starts with C Cup. Um, it, it feels like the League Cup almost because the, the Europa League is our whole season. The Premier League doesn't really have a lot of uh, in, excitement held out for us. I mean, we are just about certain to finish sixth. So it may have been the case that they have the lead and they're playing pretty well. In the middle of the game, that lull drops in where there just isn't that motivation. There isn't that desire and that, that fire to go out and win a game. And we were under pressure for a while, and then we kind of turned it back on, and we were able to, to ultimately, in the end, win it comfortably, in part thanks to check save. But Clive, I'll stay with you just for a second, and Paul, I'll give you a shot at this as well. I think we have to be looking in these Premier League games to see solutions that might ultimately help us in the Europa League and also give us an idea of building for the future. That's really what this is yeah. now. It's an exercise in preparing for the future and for the Europa League. And a player who had a really good performance was Mohamed Elneny. Not a particular fan of his. Yeah. I wouldn't say that he's a player that I love. And I can hear everybody listening shouting, who is a player that you really love? Uh, <laughs> but, but he's not one of them. But what I thought he did so well is I thought he added a little urgency and progressiveness to his passing. He was quicker with the ball, and he, he tried to be more adventurous with the ball. And so I, I guess there are two questions here, Clive, which is one, what did you make of his performance overall? And two given the struggle that Jack has had of late and Awobi as well, is the beneficiary potentially Elneny? Is he someone who should be looking to get into that team for the, for the second leg in Milan and potentially carry forward through the Europa League? He, he could easily do. He's had good games in the past. And what I, what I found, well, I've, I've gone overboard on him because I'm, I'm a fan of him. I like how he plays. Um, I've always, I like, like I say, I like players that dominate their area. He was, and he dominates it by pure metronomic passing. He makes people run after him, 
and he he makes it a lateral race. I don't like it when he when he dashes to corner flags and things like that. But he works laterally across, mid, across midfield. His support line running is his major strength, and his early picture is a good strength. But I agree with you. His passing was quicker. It was punchier, and it was forward. And what he was doing nicely is that he was following his pass. He was following it in different directions. He wasn't saying, there you go, nice pass, and admiring it. He was following it and getting it back and punching it again out the other side. And he was really dictating things. And I felt Shaka has also had many of his better games alongside Elneny. People don't want to hear that, right? But, you know, we all know there's one midfield that works. And there's on occasion when we're 1-0 down, Shaka and Elneny don't work. We look for the other solutions. When we're 1-0 up and 2-0 up, they, they look great, don't they? You feel comfortable. They move the ball. They look tall and strong. And, and this, that's what you want to see. They lack sprinting speed. I wish I wish Elneny was faster. If he was faster and more dynamic into the challenge rather than having to read situations more, he would be, he'd be a top, top player because he's got a lot of abilities. But he just lacks that speed that separates him, you know, and if you had that, we wouldn't be looking for that player that we all know we need to solve the problem. But he helps Shaka. He does, right? I mean, the positions he he takes up, the ability for Shaka to have someone he can give the ball to who's safe and gives it back where, you know, I mean, I think sometimes this season Shaka has been so isolated where he gets the ball and players just run away from him and he's under pressure and he doesn't have an easy option and I think Elneny gives him that, but he's also someone who can drop in a little bit deeper and let Shaka look up and survey the pitch and play those long passes that he likes to play. So, I mean, is it a possibility so much of, of... what happens on the pitch at Arsenal is about partnerships because it's not always about yeah. preparation and tactics. It's more about how these players connect to each other. Is this a partnership that might be suitable and, and might get the best out of these players? On occasion, it can be. Uh, and I, I think it, it needs to work because at the moment, we've only got one partnership that works. And we know that Ramsey at the moment, and maybe historically, struggles to play three times a week without eventually breaking down. And so we need something else to work, you know, and and at the moment, this is the second best partnership, in my opinion. And um and I think it's it's better than the, the Shaka Jack partnership. I think that's that's problems for me. So um so yeah, I want it to work because I want Ramsey to play when we need him to play. And that means we shouldn't miss him desperately when he's not there because we've got another functioning partnership right so we need one more we need there's a player that we need we all know what type of player that is because we don't have that player at the club we can't wish it upon mate the knows that yeah he's too young we can't wish it upon players that can't actually do the job we need to buy that player and use that you know make sure that our three-star hotels, to quote an article from many months ago, mm-hmm. we can upgrade them slightly, right? We, we, we have more four-star hotels, either by improving the player or having the right partnership for the right day so that we can answer the questions when teams try to up the intensity against us and outrun us in, in the pitch and out-physical us. If we had the ability to answer that question, great. And I think Elneny does it a different way. He does it by pure ball movement and making people concerned about their jobs and what he's going to do next. And I, I thought he was really impressive on the day. Yeah. Uh, Paul, you have anything to add to that in terms of his performance and whether it means he should get that place in the Europa League squad in favor of Jack or Wobie or any of those other options? Um, he's certainly doing himself no harm. Um, he's probably, you know, him and Jack do different things. 
And as Clive intimated, it's almost dependent on game state, but you can't swap them in and out of game state. Um, you know, Jack was on a good run for a while there, but he seems to kind of hit some kind of plateau um, until he sorts out his second half performances. It's kind of an uneven comparison. Um, but, you know, Jack's still probably the best guy. Well, El Nenny's actually pretty good under pressure in the midfield. So does it, you could argue it either way. Jack's more high risk at handling the press. Uh, he can dribble out and uh, and break forward, break the trap. Um, El Nenny, the, at his best, he maintains a beautiful balance with the his other uh, central midfield partner, whoever that is. He'll keep his distances. He'll keep the rhythm, and in that sense, um, allows you to uh, have a predictability that you can kind of build around and and. It's really a function of how well the team's performing then. If people give him and Chaka out balls, we should be much better at handling the press than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Very often we'll focus on who the, the two midfielders do. I certainly do to a fault. When in fact, if they have options, if they have two places they can put the ball when they're, when they're getting pressed, um, any midfield pairing we have will look several times better. And it may just be we don't really set up. We're, we're not really a pressing team, and we're not particularly well set up for handling the press. Well, so, <laughs> yeah, I think you could definitely say that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, the, the, so yeah. it, it, it's harsh on all these guys. Yeah, I definitely think there's more mileage in El Nenny. It's frustrating we haven't got more out of him. We've all seen him have really good games, but then seen him. He's probably had two average-looking games to every one really good game he's had. Well, they said this on the Cast Extra, and I, I think it has to be said again because it's so important. If there is any sense of a meritocracy at the club right now, you look at the form of Jack Wilshire, you look at the form, in, indeed, of Awobi, who we'll come to next, and then you look at how well then he played in this game and the qualities that he has and maybe just that extra bit of security. I mean, if, if all these players are flawed, a little bit of security, particularly in the second leg of a tie that you're leading 2-0, is not such a bad thing. If there's any sense of meritocracy at the club... You would think that El Nenny should keep his place, and those other guys should be kept out of the firing line a little bit, at least, uh, as I said, in a situation where caution is probably the order of the day. So, Paul, we'll just stick with you for a second, because I know Clive is chomping at the bit, and I want him to get all fired up and excited to answer this. It, it's a 3-0 win, and it's, it's always fun when you win 3-0 to find something to complain about. So I'm going to do that. I thought it was a pretty rough day for Awobi, and... Yeah. There's no question this is a talented young player. I just wonder how much longer we're going to caveat every opinion we have of him with saying he's talented and young. He's in a really poor run of form right now. He seems to be struggling for confidence. You saw Mesut Ozil get visibly upset with him on a few occasions. He had a good chance from the left channel that he blazed over. Just his technique for striking the ball is terrible. He has good footwork, good technique on the ball, but he really seems to be struggling with end product. And I know Tim has said on this pod a lot that, oh, end product comes later in your career, and that's great, but then maybe he needs to be starting a little bit less at this stage of his career until he can find that. And unfortunately, what I would say is the things he's doing that aren't end product aren't helping us enough to overcome his deficiencies in the final third. Are you as down on the performance he put in on the day and where he is at the moment? Yeah, I think so. I think he's he's plateaued. <laughs> and not on See, a high realize, plateau. Yeah, a plateau is a flat 
part where you just stay at the same level. I would say this has more of the qualities of like the other thing, the thing that points down. What would you call that? Well, a downslope? Well, he <laughs> he peaked and yeah. then he went into a little dip and then he came up maybe a little bit and plateaued, but it's not a very good plateau. Um, you, you, you won't be cheering every time he's on the team sheet at the moment, which is a shame. Um, and, and maybe, you know, you, you could see his career going in different directions, but right now um, he's not. If he plays, it's because other players aren't available. I mean, really, it should be Mikatarin on one side and Ozil on the other, the way we're set up at the moment. Um, and, you know, now you get to an interesting who's going to be in the midfield three. Um, and we got a problem there because we got Chaka, Ramsey. So who's getting that other spot? Now, we talked about Lacazette, and that'll be a very interesting experiment as to where and how he, he plays when he comes back in the our Premier League setup. But I guess we're going to be doing so much rotating um, in, in the Premier League. It may be a little bit less meaningful what happens to it will be for the rest of this season. He may be a Premier League candidate if he's a europa league uh candidate we probably got an injury somewhere and that's not good that's um, actually a really interesting point is that the premier league now weirdly becomes like the b team and this is his chance i mean he's got what eight games left or whatever it is to show that he can get himself back on track career-wise and and start next season as, as an important player for us yeah i mean he gets to play with obama yang so that's that's the uh, upside of playing with the B team in the Premier League. Um, I also think we'll still be playing, for the reasons said before, we'll still be playing a a pretty darn good team um, that we put out there, but it it creates this slightly weird situation. But he's he's certainly not my first 11 or, or pushing to get in, which was maybe more realistic as an expectation. He's been better than this. And he's had a couple of games where he was good this season, but a, a lot fewer games than uh, last season and maybe his breakout season as well has he looked. You know, he just doesn't look like a player who's who's remotely going to be a, a starting 11 player in the future. And there the was in his kind of first one and a half seasons, he looked like a player who who could put him in the frame if he kept developing, but... In a, if anything, as we said, he he's picked a plateau and not a good one. He just he did nothing good in this game. No, and um, it's sad, right? Because this is a game where, for all of our defensive challenges, I thought we attacked relatively well. We did create good chances. We did have openings. He was playing with Ozil and Mkhitaryan and Aubameyang, so we had plenty of talent around him, and so everything was set up for him to have a chance to thrive. And for him not to thrive under those circumstances, I think, is a little bit more damning in terms of of delivering judgment than if it was like a a pure b team and he was playing with the kids and you know it was tougher yeah. opposition or something like that uh, i really felt we carried him and like we were playing with 10 men apart from we had a guy to fill that space which which was kind of like in the second world war where they made those cardboard uh, tanks inflatable tanks um here we go so it looked <laughs> like we had somebody out there but yeah. <laughs> glad but- they didn't press him yeah, I mean, Clive, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, I know your thoughts on Owobi from an attitude standpoint, but just in terms yes. of pure execution, I mean, 
it's hard to explain. It's hard to use attitude to explain things like the shot he took where he blazed over from the left channel and just his his technique is all wrong right now. His technique's wrong and he's starting to think. And so it was, let's just go back to when he was introduced, right? So when he had his purple patch, we had Sanchez up front, I think Ozil playing in the 10. We had Walker on the right and he played on the left, right? And in that role, it was all about continuity keep moving the ball you've got two scorers people that take responsibility away from you for the final thing which is putting the ball into the net right so i'm a big believer in structure i'm a big believer in managing stress of young players the way to do that is to give them defined roles make sure they know what they're going to end up doing where they're going to start and what and how they are viewed what, you know, if I ask five people what they think Alex Iwobi is, we might get five different answers, and some of those might include swear words right now, right? So, what, what is it? So, so what, what is it? Well, so I can come back to what you, how you evaluate players, right? So, when I first saw him, I thought, yeah, he's quite neat on the dribble. He actually, you know, I did watch some youth games with him as well, and he played centre forward. He was quite strong over the top. He felt one of his first goals against Everton, he ran away from defence. And slotted it from the right hand side. I thought, okay, he's quite he's quite decent. He just got a bit of power and pace about him. Then you see him in one on one duels, and he's got a massive backside, and he uses his body really well. And so you say, it's okay. Well, so what do you want to be, son? Do you want to be a scorer? Do you want to be a final pass merchant, or do you want to use your fantastic physicality to be a number eight in centre midfield? And this is what someone's got to tell him, or he's got to decide. Because at the moment, we're looking at him now on that left hand side with somebody who has to have the final pass or shot. Because no longer is Sanchez there, no longer is Walcott there, which means the expectation on goal scoring and final pass has now gone up. And that's how now he's being judged a year or so later. He's not being judged as a plucky young kid who happens to keep the ball and can play with the flow of a, of a good Arsenal side when they're on top. Now he's been asked to help pick up a team that's been on the floor and actually score and pass and assist. And that's very difficult for him, and he's struggling. And also, he's seen as by players for his position, forward players. And he's thinking, well, the, the golden route I've had to the first team has suddenly been put under pressure. And you can see, similar to Oxlade Chamberlain, he looks quite sensitive. He looks quite bothered by the criticism. He looks quite bothered by the lack of form. And he looks like a player that's actually quite quick to throw himself into that hole I spoke about previously I think he's somebody that's suffering at the moment so what he needs is somebody to define him or he needs to be strong enough with agent advice like Walcott did many years ago although I didn't like it to say I want to play here I want to play up front or I want to play on the wing but I, I admire Theo for that because he's let he's trying to dictate his career at the moment it will be what's his pathway Where's his best position? What's going to happen to him next week and the week after? He's no longer in control of that. I don't recommend he, he to, crowdsources it from Twitter at the moment, by the way. Yeah, he needs to really think about his key attributes and say, I need to develop myself here. I need to, you know, I personally think he could be a deeper player. He did it once at Southampton in that, in that, in that midfield. I think he can really drive that situation. I think he's got real strength. 
So he needs to focus on the defensive side of his game and the carrying and connecting side of his game. Because uh, I think he could be a real powerhouse if he develops that. I don't see the calmness of execution and technique in the top end of the pitch. I don't see a final pass. I don't see a cross. I see a good time player that does that when everything's going well. Is he going to do that 1-0 like Mkhitaryan did last week? At, at 21, no chance. At 29, like Mkhitaryan is, well, he's got a chance. At the moment, let's define him based on his natural gift, which is his physicality, and give him a chance to progress the ball in areas where there's less pressure, to rebuild his confidence again. I think that's something that Arsenal really need to think about with young players. We don't define their positional pathway. There's a danger of the same thing happening to Reese Nelson right now. You know, we use him at wing-back. We all know he's somebody that needs to play higher at the pitch, but in this formation, we could do with another wide player that can really devastate. He's not getting a chance, right? So, and I think we, we, we cloud players and we lose players by not defining their roles early enough and giving them a stress-free environment to go into. And I think he won't be suffering for that. Attitude problems beside, that's all conjecture and what we read. I think we can help him by defining him coaching him and helping him fix issues that he has and supporting him. And if we do that, we don't lose the player, but we are at risk at losing him at the moment. And that, that's a shame. It is a shame. I mean, the thing is, he's got great feet, you guys, but he's so staccato. He is such a staccato player. What I mean by that is extra touch, little touch, little control, little touch, little move, little dribble. I mean, he he doesn't do anything in a very smooth or instant way. It's staccato because he needs that extra time to think. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this. One of the things that drives me absolutely nuts about him is he never plays the overlap. And that will drive your teammates crazy because Kolasinac made several overlapping runs to the byline and wasn't tracked by Watford defenders and will be cuts inside and his brain switches off and he's totally unaware of the overlap. And when you're a fullback and you're running up and down and up and down and up and down, and every time you overlap, that that nominal left winger is not giving you the ball, it's going to drive you nuts. And he just he wants that extra touch. He switches off to what's happening around him. He only sees what he can see. His head is down a lot when he's on the ball. I just think he's really struggling in the final third because of a lack of awareness a lack of vision of what's happening on the pitch. You look at Mesut Ozil, and what makes Mesut Ozil such a special player is he knows where all, well, I guess it would be 21 other players are all the time on the pitch, it seems like. And Awobi doesn't really seem to ever know where anybody is. It's it's a problem. Now, you know, I mean, look, I, I don't want to beat the kid up, but I, I think at this point you have to say in big moments he, he's not very reliable, which is problematic because we don't have a left winger. I, I think, Clive, you make a really important point, though. What is his position? He's not a 10. He's not a striker. He's not a wide forward. He's not a central midfielder. He's this weird shut ball shuttler, carrier, connective kind of player. And to your point, when you have an extra scorer on the pitch, I think you can accommodate that. You have Ozil and two strikers. But you can't accommodate that when you really have one goal-scoring player on the pitch. So, you know, it's, it's frustrating because I, I don't know that there's a solution for that. Yeah, mate, you know, remember the Chelsea away game when we played Iwobi, Welbeck with Ramsey and, and Shaka and did the did the nil-nil game in the league? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Iwobi's value was massive on the day, right? And what was his value? Where was he most valuable? Work rate, defensive ability, right? Yeah. I think we're seeing him wrong. That was a frustrating game, by the way, though, too, because we were just totally impotent going forward. <laughs> 
we were. But on the day, he, we needed that nil-nil. Yeah, we were struggling that's, for that's confidence. Right, yeah. And he was deployed in that role and he did that job. And sometimes you, the, the player staring you in the face, you just don't want to see it. And I think he's a, he could be a very diligent, hard-working midfielder, a third midfielder, like the player we just let go to, to Liverpool. He could do that role in the midfield three. He just needs to focus on those things. Because to me, I think the stress of final ball is not there. And But I do think you can build yourself as a player by the key fundamentals of working hard, winning your duels and moving the ball. And he can do that. At the moment, his body's closed as he receives it because he's not confident. So he's not receiving it on the back foot. When you see it on the back foot, the next pass is open to you. Your body shape's open. He's now receiving it. So the ball's going back where it's come from because he's closed. He can't see. You're absolutely right, Ellie. He can't see. He hasn't got the wing mirrors on. He can't see because he doesn't want to receive it with a tricky way, like a Cleb on the back foot, little shake and bake around the corner. Doesn't want to do that because that's risky. And right now, you can hear the crowd murmuring in his ears. He's think, I don't want to lose this. I'm going to knock it back where it's come from. When you see that 25 times, you think, mate, you're not fooling me anymore. You're just a dot on the side of a pass map and you're passing exactly back where it's come from. And that's not progressive. That's not the player that we know he can be. Not from that position either, right? I mean, he's playing essentially as a forward, so no, you can't do that. (laughs) Yeah, and we need to help him, right? We need to help him. He's young. None of us are perfect when we were. (laughs) No, look, I get it. I I think it's challenging too because this is a team that has no natural wide players right now, and so it's it's all a little bit samey-samey congested in in those channels and – sort of at the edge of the box in the central spaces because everybody kind of wants to do the same thing. We've been over that a lot, so we can move on from it. But, Paul, there, there's a lot to love about this game. I mean, there was the, the Aubameyang goal, Mkhitaryan goal, assisted by Aubameyang, vice versa on the, on the Aubameyang goal. But arguably the highest moment that got the biggest crowd reaction is the, the check penalty save. So, I mean, it is funny, right, how, thing, how crowds can react to things. But this... This really felt like a big moment. I mean, he desperately wants that 200th clean sheet. It's Troy Deeney who had made those comments about, you know, our, our cojones the last time we played them. And it's a poor penalty. It's hit pretty much straight at check, slightly to his right. He saves it well. Was that your highest moment of the game? No, it was, it was like one of the most, I mean, I guess in certain ways. Just like the crowd, that was kind of the the highest pantomime moment. It was when the villain got his comeuppance. Um, so I mean, it was it was poetic. He he wrote his own script. Um, so it was good. It was fun. Um, but but it, it didn't get your a, blood pumping, huh? <laughs> uh, um, yeah. I, I, think I, I just, fucking loved it. <laughs> I loved it. No, I, I did. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I did love it. I just, uh, Obama Yang's goal was the high point for me. Yeah, um, okay, that's fair. Yeah. So um, well, talk to me about that goal a little bit. It would, you know, it's funny. I have PTSD from Giroud a little bit. Not that Giroud is a bad player, but, I, you know, you know my feelings. But so Obama Yang collects it, and he takes that, I guess you could say, heavy touch, an intentioned touch across the box. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And he has to use a real burst to get there. And I just kind of flashed back to Giroud, and I was like, oh, he's overhit that. Well, that chance is gone. But he's on it so quick that that makes the goal. Is, is that really what stood out to you about that goal is the run, but then that, that burst to get to that touch across the box? Well, uh, I love players who ran keepers. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we saw Ramsey do it. There was the great Ozil uh, what was that, riding Lut- the wave. or something, yeah. 
Yeah, ludogrets. You don't see it very often. Um, but from my vague recollections of bits of Dortmund I've seen in the past, he does it quite a lot. And it's it's the sign of a gu- of a striker who knows he has the keeper. Um, uh, and the best strikers uh, pick their moments to round the keeper. And they make it look so easy, you think, well, why doesn't everybody do it? Usually when you try and round the keeper, the keeper gets it. I don't know how, but uh, they kind of the keeper has the advantage. They have the reach. They have uh, they can cut off the ankles. Sorry, the angles. Um, but I mean, uh, the keeper never gets anywhere near Obama Yang. He's dead by the time uh, Obama Yang has made his run, let alone got the ball. He's just he, like you say on the touch. Maybe it was a. Little big. I I felt comfortable well, it around the it. keeper. I think he knew, where- but but to yeah. me, Paul, I guess the point is it is, you know, it's I expected a defender to be running on to it, you know, get to it before he did. You know what I'm saying? Like it's it's one of those touches yeah. where he still has distance to cover. There. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he yeah. gets there. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to see. The, the, there was a strange amount of space there, but I I think it's kind of that was the clever thing about the the Mkhitaryan ball. I thought he was going to play at the other side of the centre back, the earlier ball. But he played this one just down the middle. Obama Yang had a long way to come for it, but they both knew they had the time. So it was kind of Mikatarian knew where to put it just to let Obama Yang run at it. Well, and then he gets there before tasty. the keeper too, right? I mean that that that's yeah. He thing. got there just before a Wobi too, who was mm-hmm. in an offside position. Man, that guy would have got stoned oh, to yeah. death. Yeah, had he screwed that one up. And the other thing to. Clive's point about how physically strong and kind of, uh, you know, where Aubameyang's at. This was the first time he did his uh, forward flip celebration, which I greatly enjoyed. Oh, man, are uh, you I kidding just, me? The first time I saw it, I thought, please don't hurt yourself. I, I tweeted about this. Like, I, every yeah. Arsenal fan, when they see that, has to have that little heart palpitation of, oh, he's going to injure himself doing that. Yeah, but it's, to to the point of like your high point, I just really luxuriated in that goal. That was, that was beautiful. That's like that's like a beautiful woman settling back into a warm bubble bath with a glass of through of balls to red wine. <laughs> you, you got it. through balls to pacey strikers that result yeah. in goals are just really great to watch. Just the the speed yeah. of it, the the artistry of it, it was great. Um, yeah, and you know maybe a quick. A quick shout out to Shodan Mustafi, who hasn't gotten a lot of mention here. But I mean, Clive, I've I've been pretty hard on the guy over the past few yes, weeks. Yes, you have, um, and rightfully so, <laughs> because you know when I'm critical of a player, it's only because of tough love that they deserve. And I think I've gotten him back on track. Um, you know, it's it's not something that I wanted to have to do, but by slating him on the podcast, I seem to have lit a fire under him and gotten him back on track. But he did score a beautiful headed goal from a set piece. He did hold together a somewhat leaky but otherwise functional defense with two kids in it. I mean, are we maybe seeing him round the corner from bad defending town back into acceptable defending village? Yeah, I thought his goal was really good. Um, really, really good header. And um, I think uh, he's, a, he's a player that we need to work. You know, we need him to work. He's one of our 25-year-olds, that middle bracket. We haven't got many of those, right? So we got you know, Shaka, El Nenny, we got Mustafi. Then we go up a year or two, then we're into the Ramsey-Wilshire sort of zone. And we need them to work. And there's sort of like doubts about almost all of them at times. You know, they're not, all of them lack a bit of consistency. 
they are potentially the ones with the big contracts coming or just had. They are they are a big part of our future, or are they? Right. So we need Mustafi to to kick on because the other guy next to him can't play him or has to be rested. And so we're either looking for him to be our defensive leader or we're looking for somebody else to come in and be that defensive leader and Mustafi supports them. I think he's still very erratic, even in games where he does good things. He always feels on the verge of doing something stupid. But then he, that leads to the 3 out of 10 games or the 9 out of 10 games. And he had a you know an eight nine out of ten game this week, but still ended up going off with an injury, and we've lost him at crucial times in the past before for him overextending himself etc. So he's a player I want to like, but then I look at him and he does some stupid things. He really does. He misreads what's happening around him. You're watching the game and suddenly out of the left hand corner of your widescreen TV, he appears somewhere smashing somebody. You know. 15, 20 yards into the opponent's half, leaving Koscielny in masses of space. You just wonder what triggers him sometimes. So, please, he had a good game. Please, he's on the upward curve. Am I convinced? Not yet. Um, but let's see what happens in the summer. Is he going to be one of the 25-year-olds that we trust? I think that's still debatable, but I hope he gets consistent and so we can trust him because there is something in there we're just not seeing it regularly enough. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the the problem is there's a talented player in there, but it's a talented player who makes mistakes. And like at center back, you almost want someone whose average is okay if they don't make big mistakes, right? If your central defenders have to do a lot of defending, odds are your team isn't playing well. Your central defenders shouldn't have to do a lot of defending, and. I mean, unfortunately, Arsenal central defenders often have to do more defending than they should, and that's a structural systemic yeah. problem, and we've talked about it. But the thing you need from them is that when they are called upon, they all right, not all of them are going to be heroes in every moment, but they can't shit the bed. They can't make terrible mistakes, and he has too many terrible mistakes in him, and that undermines the, the incredible talent that can be in there. I, I want to finish the pod with two... Uh, Issues, topics not related to the match specifically. It's great to get a win. That was nice. The tens of fans that were there really seemed to enjoy it, and I did as well. And it was great to see Obama and get on the score sheet, McTarian as well. So all in all, a good game. Check, clean sheet, save the penalty. It's all great. Two things that happened outside of the game. One, there was a fans forum. And, and Paul, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to see any of the quotes from it. So if you haven't, we can uh, pump this back over to, to Clyde. But I'll give you the first shot at it. Uh, Raul made his first comments. Uh, he was there with Gazidis. They talked about managerial change, although they said it wouldn't be right to speak about managerial change. They sort of were pointed in, in identifying that Raul has overseen many manager changes. Any quotes or topics from that fans forum that stood out for you as being significant? Uh, I did see some of the quotes on it. It it seemed like that was an unusual tone, but maybe sensitive. It's got to be very difficult inside the club to read the mood and what plays out there uh, without testing the message. So I know they know what's going on out there, but I just wonder if it's an attempt to be sensitive <clears throat> to the the mood of the supporters having just seen that 80-something percent of, of people who voted in the AST uh, survey wanted to change a manager. There's no At that point, there's no good answer. Um, and even when you're making sure you're not giving a bad answer, it doesn't make 
make it not a bad answer. So uh, I just kind of gave that one a pass. I can't imagine he's trying to stir up anything right at this moment in time. Uh, it's just such a terrible time of the season to 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 want movement in either direction. I mean, the Europa League's on the line, and Ivan doesn't want to be the one who screws that up. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I wasn't crazy about the comment, but I could see where he was trying to get to with it. Uh, the other comments, uh, I mean, I did read some of the stuff, but nothing else particularly stuck out to me. I mean, the San Leahy stuff was was interesting uh, and very applicable. But, um, yeah. Okay, Clive, any thoughts about what was said there that, that interested you? I thought it was um, the first, the first like introduction um, to to Raúl and to the club. I think it was a lovely piece of positioning, and I call it, it was a little bit touching on, very gently on on the problem statement that we have, and they're letting you know that they know the landscape, they know how revenue streams have changed. A few when we was in the stadium, they said that forty percent of the revenue was was match day revenue. It's now at twenty percent. So they know where the that how important TV is, and they know how important the brand is, and how important commercial value is. And I think it's like a little look at that. They weren't disaligning themselves from anybody, and they weren't overly aligning themselves to anybody. They were making sure you knew that there was a team there. They said things like the staff has doubled over the last three years, which I found was really interesting quote because I don't think. I never sensed that. Did you sense that in all the time? We're quite, you know, we're big Arsenal watchers. I couldn't sense that the Arsenal staff has doubled over the last three years, despite the high-profile announcement since the summer. I mean, when, so, when he says staff, though, I mean, is he just talking about the overall staff running the club? Because you could see that as a club's yeah. just become bigger and moved to a bigger stadium. A lot of that may not be football-related. Uh, absolutely, but we moved in stadium in 2006, right? So, and here we are in 2018. This is a three-year doubling of the staff. Yeah, that's true, right? So, so that means we've got we've we've obviously eat, we're obviously looking They're at all change. social media managers. <laughs> we're all looking at change, significant change. Things are happening, right? So, I found that quite comforting actually because I've always talked about people infrastructure and the depth of people at the club and to hear from this guy you know the matter is just quotes I wasn't in the room I, I, I'm excited I, I am excited I'm desperate for a new voice and a new direction and a new thought processes to be pushed forward and not us to be so dependent on one individual right so so yeah it's a nice piece of positioning a nice piece of alignment a nice piece to say this is the problem statement that we have. And come the summer, I think those voices are going to get louder and louder and louder as we move on. So, um, so yeah, nice work. And let's, I'm really excited for the future. Yeah, well said. I, I don't have anything to add to that because my opinions on this are pretty much nonsense. So we'll move on from that and finish with this. Paramount Sacker uh, gave an interview to Der Spiegel. Der Spiegel. Der Spiegel. Um, uh, also my favorite breed of dog. But... Uh, it was it's translated. German for Siegel. Oh, yeah, well, that makes sense. So he gave uh, an interview to Der Spiegel. Siegel. Der, der, he gave an interview to, to a thing, and the thing said stuff, and the stuff was translated brilliantly by Lewis Ambrose for uh, Arsbog News, and we all read it, and we were all moved by it. Paul, it is unique to see an athlete speak this way. I think it is getting mixed reception, because while it is very open and honest and important and 
something that I think it is easy to have tremendous empathy for. I think there are people that there are wonder, a lot of idiots in the world. Well, they're idiots, but I think there are people that wonder out loud about you know this mentality for someone who is still ostensibly a player and captain of the club. So I was curious how you received it and if you have any of those conflicted feelings about it. Uh, well, I have conflicted feelings, but not negative against Per or anything. Um, it was. Um, it seemed a bit German to me in that he kind of just laid it all out there, but didn't overly explain it. I mean, there was no kind of introduction to what the real issue was. It was kind of, I had to read it a second time to make sure I'd understood what I thought it was about. And it just seemed to be a guy who like was really struggling with, you know, massive anxiety and nerves and yet performing at the highest level. What's that term for, uh, a high performing alcoholic what's the the kind functional? of functional uh, highly functional yeah. yeah highly functioning alcoholic i clearly per mertesacker is a highly functioning uh guy dealing with in, incredible levels of stress that's that players have every player has at some level of the spectrum he's probably down the far end of the spectrum a lot of players obviously love match day and are up for it but have some level of anxiety and you have this whole uh all these things you don't know about players and the problem is some players it's like water off a duck's back you know the insults abuse stress all the ups and downs uh all the challenges and there's per you'd never have thought it i mean the guy's a rock absolute rock of a guy um but it's kind of the stiff upper lip variety where there's so much going on underneath and it just m- takes you back that you're finding. It's interesting because you normally hear this stuff at the end or after somebody's career. And I guess we're kind of at that point. It's kind of fascinating that he says he'd prefer not to play. He'd prefer to be in the stand or maybe on the bench than on the field. And I can't, you know, when I put myself into a player's position, I can't ever imagine if I was capable of playing and i guess he's saying he's not capable of playing um that you'd ever feel that way but he does imply that this is kind of this is an urge he's had for a long time um yeah. obviously loves football hates match day so I, i'm torn on this a little and clive i'm going to give you a big swing at it as well but so part of it is look there's been a lot of articles lately coming out from professional athletes and other prominent figures about mental health issues and depression and things like that and how they're serious now they should be taken seriously and trying to remove this destigmatize these mental health issues and it's wonderful it's absolutely wonderful because people are struggling everybody's struggling with something and there needs to be more sympathy more empathy more help more support more understanding for people going through these things um and that's all of us all the time uh and some people certainly obviously much much more worse and severely than others i don't know that this read like a mental health issue this read like someone who finds his high pressure job to be filled with pressure and it gives him a great deal of anxiety to the extent that he isn't always able to enjoy it and feels happier away from it now i think it's wonderful he's able to express that but my reaction to that is a little more of the variety of well that's what goes with the territory man i mean there are people that get anxiety doing lots of jobs you have a very high-paying job doing something that, you know, ostensibly a lot of other people really enjoy doing. I, you know, I don't think that there's any question that there's a lot of hard work that goes into playing football, but it is still playing football, and I realize there's a lot of training and physical 
physically keeping your body in shape constantly year-round. I'm not saying it's a lot of fun all the time. I guess, to me, this, and, and I could be reading it wrong, but it didn't read so much as like an expose on mental health as just like a see footballers sometimes really struggle and don't have the most fun with football, but there are a lot of Can people I in high... Can I say something on yeah, that? Yeah, please do. Yeah, and, and Clive, I promise I'm because not trying to shut you Because I think it's a great point. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's a great point. Uh, I think you really made the point of, of kind of where he didn't really label what he was talking about. And I, I certainly, you saw it as him talking about the the high anxiety, basically. And so did I, really. Except I see that as a mental health issue because uh, in my life I have somebody who deals with extreme anxiety. And, ang- you know, anxiety is, they have anxiety and they have depression. They say anxiety is worse. No, I, I get that. You know what it is, Paul? It's that to me, it, yeah. this wasn't someone who's saying, I get this feeling going to the grocery store. I get this feeling, you know, getting on an airplane. I, to me, it seemed very tied to the high stakes world of football. And so I, I don't, you know, if you're doing something that's filled with pressure and it gives you anxiety, that kind of just feels right, right? Like, I mean, if you walk along a high wire, you're going to feel anxiety. That doesn't mean you suffer from anxiety necessarily. You're walking on a high wire. Yeah. Let, let's get, let's get so, Clive in. Yeah, can I just thought? quickly yeah. say, though, he does say it as if he doesn't think this is normal and this is not what his colleagues are going through. He's talking about sharing yeah, a room with fair. some guy and his legs twitching. He's not presenting this as, you know, we all go through it. But So I think you make a good point. My, the reason I thought that it was a bit weird was, as I say, he never really labeled what it was and kind of so he he was open he shared so much and left so many questions is he you know what is he really telling us kind of yeah we all jump to our own conclusions no i'm not i'm not saying i don't have empathy for it i'm saying i wasn't sure Sure. that i viewed it through the lens of a mental health issue and that i think makes it harder to understand whether we're supposed to you know how how significant this is to come out with it and, and how we're supposed to react to it. And by the way, you, it's perfectly fine to react to it by saying he's a human being struggling with human being stuff and we should all be empathetic of that. Clive, you want to add something more erudite to this? <laughs> it's a very important subject, so I hope I get this right. Right. So I think um, he was talking more about newfound well-being. He's been somebody that's played football most of his adult life. And this is probably the longest period where he hasn't played football. He's now reflecting back and saying, well, actually... I like how I feel now compared to how I used to feel in high stress moments playing football. And that's, that's, that's great, right? He's still on a life discovery. He's on a life's journey. He's discovering himself and he's sharing that just as he's moving towards retirement. He's saying, you know what? I'm telling you now, I'm probably not going to miss not playing because, and here are my experiences of real trauma and stress while playing. And you often hear me when, I, when I'm analysing players, you often hear me use the word stress, don't you? And, I, and it's not because it's just a word I've plucked out of the air. I, I really mean it when I say it. And the reason why I've, I've got a bit of exposure to this is I've, I've been exposed to a lot of young academy footballers that have a huge amount of stress as young children training five times a week and playing on the game, going through different age groups trying to get selected the pressure them to get selected the pressure them to get to their goals when they finally get through to a scholarship what happens then maybe two or three of them make it through to a pro contract the first pro contract is worth nothing it's all about the second pro contract that's when you really get paid there is so much stress around football managing stress managing young people to handle that level of stress is so important for the short window 
that they are at their professional and physical peak for. And one of the things I do, just voluntary things, I, I actually mentor a, a, a young lady athlete. She was an ex-junior world champion. She's about 20 years of age. And if I could tell you the thoughts and the stresses that she goes through when she trains every single day, twice a day, just to get back to the level that she used to be at. And I can't tell you the effort that these guys have to put in to get to that elite level. You're an elite person. Everyone can kick a football. What type of personality do you need to be to reach the level that Perma Attack has reached? 100 caps for his country and a World Cup winner. That takes a different type of personality. So there's going to be a kickback from all of that. You know, they're not like us. They're different to us. And that means they're wired differently. So we can't assume that their mental structures are similar to things that we recognize. And we can't sit back and say, well, you're doing something that we would all dream to do. Let me tell you, I've seen players, young and old, crumble under pressure, crumble under stress. And we're talking about one in a Wobie earlier on. And I watched that player and I genuinely am concerned for him. I don't criticise him. I really mean it when I say he needs help. He absolutely needs help to manage this, what he's going through. Because all that's happening to him is he's struggling under the pressure. And Perth telling us as a 33-year-old man that's achieved everything he wanted to achieve in the game, that's about to go into the next phase of his life, and he's finding a new well-being. And I think it's great that he shared that. I know what you mean, Elliot, about Kevin Love and what's happening to Marty Rosen in the US. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, I think it's, you know, I watch US basketball sport quite closely, and I, I, I was really surprised, but also pleased about that. This is not a trend. This is not a fad. This is something that goes on at every single elite sporting organisation. Some people handle it better than others. Some people hide it better than others. Managing stress is done in different ways. This is why I always talk about structures coaching defined roles that helps that helps people they know what they're doing and the best teams we watch today are people that look relaxed they look relaxed because they're coached within a winter of their lives they know what they're doing so i think he's great what he's doing and i, I think he's going to be an absolutely tremendous academy manager for young people because he can talk about his journey he went through education he, he went for education late and came into football late. He didn't just come from a kid that's not been educated. He's got experiences in different countries. He's reached the highest level. He's articulate. He's got presence. I think he's an absolutely genius signing, and, and I hope he's as successful as I think he's going to be. Yeah, and, and to his credit, by the way, those, that's all very well said by both of you. I think worth pointing out, he wasn't asking for anyone to, you know, quote, feel sorry for him, that he knows he's been very fortunate, that he would do it exactly the same way again, to the extent that, you know, he wouldn't give up any of his footballing career. So I, I do think it was a very interesting look into it. I, I like to interrogate these things beyond just the superficial level. That's not to say that I don't have a sympathy for what he's gone through in those struggles. I think we all go through struggles. I guess it is fair that sometimes when someone who has a lot of money and does something that looks very enjoyable to us from the outside, it is hard for us to feel sad for them, feel sorry for them, feel pity for them, uh, you know, outside of extraordinary situations like the, the death of a child or a loved one, something like that. But I think this does shed a light on it, that, that there are challenges to everybody's life and to the thing they're going through that maybe we don't see from the outside or even understand ourselves but feel very real to them. And it is a reminder that whatever your life, your problems in your life are going to be the most important thing in the world to you, and they're real, and they should be taken seriously. So I thought it was great that he got a chance to, to speak about that. 
Um, I, I just think it's, you know, it's an interesting thing to dive into a little bit. And anytime someone reveals what they're going through, I think it can actually be a help to any of us to kind of turn the mirror inwards and, and look at what we're going through ourselves and how we're handling it. So I think we'll leave it there. Um, we've got Milan again on Thursday. We've talked a little bit about that ahead of that game in the last podcast, but my guess is it'll be roughly the same lineup we put out um, last Thursday, except obviously if Monreal or Bellerin can come back in, I would imagine they would, and obviously there'll be a fitness test for Mustafi and the rest of it should be about what we expect. So hopefully just your bog standard 1-0 win to the Arsenal or something where we cruise through and then draw whoever the weakest team is left in the quarterfinal. Um, and it would be exciting, quarterfinal in Europe. I mean, it's it's still a, a big event. It would still be a big occasion and something that would be a lot of fun to look forward to. So Paul's on Twitter at Paws Into My Pants. Thanks, Paws. Woohoo! Exactly. Clive's on Twitter at Clive PAFC. Thank you, as always, Clive. Top man. Thanks a lot, mate. Yeah, you bet. And my name's Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Give us a five-star review. Write nasty things about me. It's been a while. Write nasty things about me. I deserve it. God knows I deserve it. Um, and then I will write a tell-all article about how your nasty things have led me to anxiety and depression. So there you go. So maybe don't write them too nasty. Just nasty enough. Uh, in any event, we will uh, we will definitely try to get a podcast out Friday. It's always tricky with the Thursday schedule, but we'll do the best we can and try to get everybody on for that, including uh, Scott and Tim, whether you like them or not. So until then, we'll speak to you after Arsenal 10. Milan, nil. No.